Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange. We run online courses and mentorship, so check it out at tkex.org. We've got a few self-paced ones online there, and we also run some clinical discussion groups, so all info on the website. I'm joined today by our special guest, Mr. Steve Collins. He's a physiotherapist, an experienced strength and conditioning coach, and a university educator. And we're gonna dive into a lot about dynamic systems theory. So some of the buzzwords that we'll probably cover today, nonlinear pedagogy, we've got Newell's constraints model and a constraints-led approach. And hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll have some really useful frameworks that are applicable practically to general population clients, as well as the athletes that you might see in clinic. So Steve, thank you so much for making the time for us. Yeah, no dramas at all, mate. It's um, yeah, a pleasure to come on. And uh, I definitely use the Knowledge Exchange group a lot myself for uh, getting some ideas on all the different discussions that are there and then kind of go and research further into it. So it's a great group and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it and glad hopefully I can help out today in some way. Amazing. Well, for the famous question that we always ask, what's your story? Cool. Okay. My, my story, um, slightly different into it. I didn't get, this wasn't my first kind of profession. So originally I was a electrician and kind of out in the, the big bad world out in the mines. And then I, um, decided, you know, that, that wasn't for me. I wanted to get into helping people. So went the whole like personal training route and then kind of from there got into working with athletes just luckily. And then, um, got, came back to Brisbane, did a ex science degree through that transferred over to physio and, kind of had that real passion for strength and conditioning along the way. So kind of just went through my parallel to my physio degree, went through my getting my ASCA level one, ASCA level two, which is a, a pretty decent amount of work involved in that. That was, that was actually really where a lot of my passion in these type of things that we're going to talk about. So a lot of, I guess, critical thinking and a lot of epistemology, that type of stuff actually came on, which is good, which leads really well into then dynamical systems theory and that that we're going to talk about today. So yeah, from there kind of went out into, got into the physiotherapy profession. I practice still a lot more like a, a coach slash a, less of what you'd traditionally kind of see a physiotherapist practicing, I guess. And um, yeah, and then ACU headhunted me to come and do some kind of sessional academic education work. So running the, uh, the exercise prescription subject practicals there and doing some guest lecturing on on things like a rehab continuum and uh and taking i guess you know training uh topics so yeah it's good i enjoy it that's awesome i love the intersection with the, that rehab continuum where there's rehab on one side training performance on the other and how they can all intersect so for the listeners as, as well i highly recommend steve's blogs on the physio network where he discusses some of these and I'm really interested to, to hear a little bit more perhaps on that, that coaching element and how maybe we therapists out there in, in that clinical expertise authority figure model that we've been taught can incorporate some, some coaching elements as well. And if we were to start with some definitions, Steve, how would you first define dy dynamical systems model? Thanks, mate. Yeah, I actually forgot I probably should have uh, promoted the physio network stuff there, but but no, that's I do do some writing for them, and and one of it was on movement coaching and and um, dynamical systems, massive. So 
as far as coaching is concerned, or just dynamical systems as a as a whole broad topic, it, it relates to lots of anything kind of biological, anything that a, a human can be involved in, <laughs> I guess is going to be more of a dynamic system. It's a it's an evolving, it's an emergent process. So it's where there's lots of different solutions to a problem and depending on whatever inputs are, are in that context at the time will depend on what the emergent solution to that problem, whether it's an economics problem, whether it's a movement problem, whether it's just a biological like drug reaction problem, whatever, that it's kind of very much innate in humans that we're not this linear reductive system that is able to kind of be pulled apart, take a component apart, fix a component, put it back in and it works. Instead, a dynamical systems has many different things that feed into it that then depending on their interaction, the interaction with the task, the interaction with the individual or individuals, groups of individuals, and the environment will kind of come out with a solution to the problem. And that solution will differ depending on any constraints or affordances in those three main areas, I guess. And, and but I guess the, the big thing about it is that it's emergent, a dynamical system is kind of emergent and it's a probabilities based thing, which is why sometimes a lot of therapists don't like it because it's not a, you have a good idea, it's, it's probability based, you have a good idea of what the outcome of something's going to be, but it's not, it's never set in stone, it's never 100%. So there's a lot of trial and error and predictive kind of modeling, but it's all probabilities in dynamical systems, I guess. You talked about a few of the the variables. So we touched on the depending on the task and the the environment and the the athlete. Do you want to expand in in the context of of clinical practice? What might that look like? Yeah, no, one hundred percent. So, I guess when we're looking, we have someone coming in. They're coming in often with some sort of problem that they're. It's either you know pain or they're functionally unable to do something. So. There's something, I guess, inherent in that kind of person's individual biology, their anatomy, something that is that is stopping them from being able to do the task or that's kind of, you know, might be a contributor to pain, may, maybe, maybe not. We've got to, you know, that's a different discussion and pain's another dynamical system. But I guess as far as movement coaching, the, the person will have affordances and limitations in either like, yeah, their anatomy, their biology, something that I guess has them a bit more able to or less able to do a task in a certain way so therefore then I guess you got to look at yeah what is that task and how can we change or modify that task to be able to give that person the highest probability of succeeding in that task whatever success in that task looks like and then we do that by I guess manipulation of environmental variables which are all different and, and tasks can be open and closed as well like in this so i mean some tasks are very cut and dry like a, a leg extension machine you know what i mean that's a that's a very kind of closed task it doesn't have a lot of other variables whereas sometimes we're having to try to set up more of an open task which is something like playing a game of soccer something like that having to set up an environment with constraints within more of a an open task that's going to afford whatever performance we're trying to get out of our athletes or our um, or our patient there. And then, yes, as we said, like you have the environment. So the environment is, that's, I think the biggest factor that we can kind of manipulate because, you know, the person is the person. So we just have to be really, really good at assessing 
what that person is. But the thing that we as therapists, as coaches, I think can have that real skill in is how can I change the environment to be able to suit the person to give them the success in the task that they're needing to do? So can I, after I've done the assessments of this person, you go, okay, how can I then change the environment to meet those assessed demands of the individual, I guess? I think um, with uh, my chat with Quinn Hennick, when we discussed this, I feel like with university studies, at least with my own and, and the ones that I've heard from colleagues, is we, we tend to get a bit stuck on the individual and trying to, say, build up uh, strength without considering how we can vary some of the the constraints within the task or within the environment and how that can then lead to the emergence of a, a different solution which is might be a bit more advantageous for that individual's performance or for their ability to perform a movement in more than one kind of way. I have a great example actually right now I'm currently dealing with a just finished some programming and a session with a senior professional football player who had a, a really bad posterior dislocation of his elbow. Um, finals are only like six weeks away now. It was like six weeks ago. So he's like at about eight, 12 weeks ago, something like that. So, but the traditional thing, if you're going down, I guess the traditional kind of therapy model, we have to wait to get like this full range of motion before then we're going to be able to strength train before then we're going to be able to get him back into then specific training to get into the field. So it'd be this year's completely written off. Like his goals are all completely based on this year for him is his kind of year. He's been given the okay from the surgeon that like, Hey, the capsule, everything is as strong as it can possibly be. The hospital physios aren't, they're saying, no, you know, we need to get the full straightening before, before we do it. And he's being a bit naughty. He's not telling them what we're doing, but we've sat down, we've had that discussion where his goals, I guess, are, okay, this year, I want to get back to playing. What is the thing that's going to be able to afford me to do that? So we've been working within his constraints of the limitations of the range of motion that he has. And, and that's like a little side goal that we're doing things that are trying to still gain that. But we're up to a stage now where he's he was palming a bag, complete length. He was doing clap push-ups, everything on this elbow. That's still, it's gaining range all the time. But I mean, if we were to have waited to targeted only the individual and not looked at how we could adjust the tasks and environments to suit his context of his actual goals of where he's at as long as it was it's been safe within given an okay from a really an anatomical biological perspective but then there's no way we'd be anywhere near getting him towards his goals where it's looking like in six weeks time he'll probably be good to actually get in and play finals footy he won't have full range of motion but hey that's going to be a individual limitation, but it's not actually, we've been able to change the, the demands of his tasks and just graded exposure through to enable him to actually compete and complete at the same level as his peers. And the, the range of motion thing will be something that will be more targeted in the off season. It's only going to be five or 10 degrees off anyway. So I think we've been probably limited in that traditional model. It's, it's more of that like linear progression model I'd call it I feel that's a traditional way of approaching oh yes we have to make sure range of motion is restored first it's kind of like the prerequisites in a lot of the um the, the classic kind of corrective exercise theories out there so it's interesting how we can just manipulate some of the tasks and maybe adapt accordingly to allow our athletes to you know participate in their meaningful activity yeah that was the thing for me like I mean traditionally I probably 
would have gone a bit more down that track, but that didn't match with this individual's cognitive side of, because when we're thinking individual, individual isn't only their anatomy and physiology, it's also their psychology, all their thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and those things have to match as well. And, and so that's where his goals were and it was an achievable goal. So I guess your job as a coach is how can I change or as a therapist is how can I modify the tasks and environments to just get graded exposure towards that goal within kind of a, a safe safe realm there. So that's, that's a, hopefully an example that can bring it a bit home clinically there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just on that, and we briefly touched on a few of the, the concepts and the one that comes to mind that I feel would be would be helpful to clarify that concept of emergence. So I, I feel like I, I personally get a bit confused with all the, the buzzwords out there. How would you define the concept of emergence in this model? Cool. So yeah, in a, in a dynamical model, I guess. So we look at things, well, the way that I'm going to go more buzzwords to start off with. So I guess we've been taught more as a top down and kind of a reductive system where that's more that linear system that you were talking about before, where we can kind of plan something out and then, yeah, as I said, breaking down a component part, going, okay, this component part's broken. How can I plan to, from the top down, this component part's going to take this long in a system to kind of get better? Then from that, I know that this will be the next thing that I have to focus on. And this will be about in another three weeks time. So everything's kind of pre-planned out, timelined out. It's not really taking into con uh, constraint a lot of feedback loops. So the opposite is, is, I guess, bottom up. So I guess traditional periodization for those of you out there who are more the have done the exercise science kind of degrees, that type of stuff, we all would have learned those traditional periodization. That's very much a, a kind of a top-down approach at something where you kind of, you look at what the end goal is, you break it into then periods of time that should build into the other and you kind of just do that no matter what and you really don't take into account all of these other little factors that can feed back into and change whether or not that actually would be the best approach. Whereas a a dynamical system being more emergent becomes more bottom up. So there are three buzzwords, one in a row to, to, to describe it. But no, a bottom up kind of thing, a bottom up approach is basically you're starting at, at a baseline assumption that this, I, I believe uh, my hypothesis testing, I guess, is that I've made an assessment. My hypothesis is that if I help to improve X, well, then we'll be able to move on to Y. But you don't give a set kind of timeline for that and you take into consideration all the other things that can feed back into actually changing the amount of time that you need to focus on X before you can move on to Y, I guess. So it's emergent in that, like you're not going looking at the very end result and then pre-planning blocks back. You're basically going, you're looking at the end result and you're going, okay, this is the first component that I got to work on. I'm just going to work on this for the amount of time that it needs that it shows me that, yep, it's adapted, that we've taken into consideration any kind of setbacks. That means that it's going to take longer. If it's going quicker than we thought, sweet, that's awesome. So then we can move on to the next stage. So I find that in rehab, being emergent, being bottom up, kind of allows you to be more reactive, more, I guess, meeting the patient where they're at versus kind of a top-down approach is really you're trying to get the patient to meet you where you think they should be. So that would be the, the easiest way to break it up, okay? So for this guy, again, a good way would be saying that 
initially we were doing things where I was almost programming on the on the daily or on the, basically giving little three day blocks of programming. How did he respond? If it was going in the right direction, we'd make things a touch harder, go again for another little three day block of programming and just continue to kind of go. And as, as I was getting more in tune with how he was responding to things, we'd be able to program a little bit further out and repeat that block and just keep going like that. So, so blocks build from the bottom up versus from the top down. Absolutely. Hopefully that makes a bit of sense. It, it does. And I, I feel like that's a really cool concept to, to keep in mind. And that realization that we can't predict the future, especially when it's a, such a complex system. And as you mentioned, there's feedback loops. So we can't really predict that a certain adaptation will occur eight to 12 weeks ahead of time. Because it, like, as you mentioned, there might be some setbacks there might be a different way that this system responds to the given constraints. So having that bottom-up approach allows for a bit more of that, the expectation that the process is going to be non-linear. In rehab, it's, I think it's easiest to understand, like almost physios would probably understand this. You, you get someone, you, you do an assessment, you put in place an intervention and almost next session you're getting in and you're assessing again and whether or not we should be putting in place an intervention versus kind of that's a, that's all up in the air. Like, you know, you're the language that you want to use there, but I mean, we're, we're making some sort of intervention and then we're reassessing and we're kind of re changing the intervention if it needs, or we're keeping it the same. So in performance, I just had a great conversation actually with one of my gouache athletes. So the end goal is com games kind of next year. And we kind of sat down and he'd only ever had high performance coaches who had kind of dealt with things more the traditional top-down approach. And so we sat down with the whiteboard and we just drew on one side traditional approach, on the other side kind of a bottom-up programming approach. And I let him decide, you know, obviously I said, okay, I'm going to go right out from the gate. My bias is kind of here. So, you know, don't let me sway you too much and, and we'll kind of make sure there's the same amount of dot points on either side and you can kind of, we can talk through it. And, and it was really good to go. So he was like, okay, Basically, the summary in his mind was, okay, if I had the most important com um, competition ever coming up and we don't have a long period of time for me to find out about you, well, then, yes, it makes more sense to be kind of a, a top-down approach and go, okay, we're going to do – a top-down approach works for the mean. It goes, I think you're the mean, okay, you're the average person and you're going to respond the way the average person responds in the time frame that the average person responds. So. I will plan that we're going to do a taper block three weeks out from the com games and sweep. You'll be maximally kind of tapered up and you'll be maximum performance on that. The other way he, he said to me, he was like, but this other way, you know, we have a year and a bit till then. The other way basically is me. It's just a long process of me getting to know him, me getting to know how he responds to many different types of programming, how long it actually takes for him to reach an adaptive response. And then he could see that, okay, well, then what we do then is instead of you guessing how long it takes for me to taper for something, what we'll do is we'll actually, through this experimentation, through just applying bottom-up emergent programming, where I'm just adapting to how he's adapting to things, well, then if we can do that and then we can repeat it again for another block and then we can repeat it again for another block, well, then we can say, hey, Com Games is at the end of the year. We know that it takes you roughly three exposures or three weeks or something to, or it could be five weeks to peak. 
that's when we're going to start this block. We're not just going to randomly start it when the textbook said that we probably should have. And that's based on the, the data that you use during training. So it's, it's taking into account that there's a interaction between all these variables and it's gonna, there's gonna be some patterns that we can observe over the, the long run rather than just kind of, as you mentioned, guessing based on the mean. Yeah, exactly. So it takes a lot of a lot more assessment, but it's a lot more like in tune and individualized in a bit more in keeping with what we know about biology and adaptive kind of processes. And with this approach, it's it it all kind of makes sense. And I feel like a lot of us can draw on our own experiences from working with clients in the past where sometimes the their performance or results kind of all of a sudden almost spontaneously improve and then they hit plateaus. So there's never like a linear process in the rehab journey. So we can, we can understand that experientially ourselves, but, but what are some of the, the challenges involved in applying this, this bottom-up approach in practice? Well, I, I guess I was, should probably also expand on the other way in which we can use dynamic systems theory to then go into, I guess, the, the challenges, which is actually for the, the movement coaching with dynamic systems theory. Movement coaching um, with dynamic systems theory, I guess the same thing applies. It's going, okay, we know that the movement that is going to come out is going to be emergent dependent on how the person interacts with the cue or the instructions that they are given, okay? So, you know, you could ask 10 different people to squat and if that's all you said, that could look completely different. And so really it's that person's, again, their, their anatomy and their kind of cognitive thoughts, the way that the environment was set up, okay, and, and whatever the task was. So a lot of, I guess, us, again, as, as coaches, physios, EPs, that type of stuff, we were learnt to really, we learned the biomechanics of things really well. So then we, I think, want to try to impart that onto our patient with lots and lots of cues given to kind of, you know, okay, I want you to squat down. I want you to keep your knees out. I want you to try to lean your, lean your trunk forward and I want you to make sure you're squeezing your glutes and all these things that for us, that's important because we know that that's what should be happening. But really that person, that's not then creating emergent movement, which they're going to, when we can create an emergent movement that the person actually figures out for themselves, it's a more well imprinted, like set in their brain because it's their cerebellum is using these feedback loops to go, oh, okay, this is creating little error signals and, and uh, fixing that and going, okay, this is how I move. This is what I got to do. Whereas if we're there kind of feeding, drip feeding them all these different things, it might look good when we do it, but then they're not going to remember half of those kind of cues that we give. So it's all about then our assessment of that person, knowing their anatomy, and then us just setting up the environment. So that way it's going to give them the greatest probability of achieving that task so with a squat i basically quite often i'll either just set up a chair or or i'll put like a someone will be standing with a bar on their back and i'll put the best use i've found for a foam roller actually i'll just put it about a foot and a half behind them and i'll just say okay all i want you to do is just you got a magnet and i'll just i i try i'm trying even now not to use too much body nouns or anything like that i'll like draw on them or i'll say i'll put like a bit of tape on them and i'll say okay or they'll have a logo on their shirt and i'll be like okay you've got to get this bit of tape onto that foam roller and that's all i'll say so that'll be my cue for a squat you know it'll be first 
obviously I would have demonstrated it so they know like what I'm wanting in a squat, but but my dynamical systems theory approach to teaching a squat is more so set up the environment. I've assessed, I know that person has adequate hip range of motion. I know that person has adequate kind of dorsiflexion, whatever it is that they need. And now I'm just setting up the environment to achieve or to help them figure out how to achieve it. Because if they can figure it out themselves, that's going to be something that's a lot more kind of ingrained, I guess, into their movement pattern. The biggest challenge is that's not what we've been taught. So it's not the, you know, and you're almost looked at as being like really simplistic. People are giving you like these weird looks like, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you telling them to keep their knees out? Why aren't you telling them to do this? But I don't know if, if anyone out there's ever had a kid, it's the, it's the same thing of if you're wanting to get your child to learn something, you just put the toy up on the shelf, you know, and they're going to reap, they're going to get trunk extension to get up. They're eventually going to learn how to climb those type of things. It's setting, we don't learn by, um, by getting these overly cued heaps of internal cues given to us. But then it's almost once we've gone to uni, that's what we're expected to give to everyone. Whereas realistically, I think if you just let people play with movement, emerge, bring in the appropriate environmental constraints and error cues, they kind of, and as long as your load management is, is on point, they figure it out for themselves in kind of self-defined the best way to actually get through a movement and it's a lot more efficient. Kind of gets into that automatic processing rather than the, the cognitive processing. So this touches on the, um, the learning models as well. So not only is it uh, more efficient for their learning, but it's, it's, more efficient for their performance and then back to the dynamic systems theory it's like the the system self-organizes based on the constraints given to the individual and then that that also helps us with the the coaching to adapt to that individual according to the task rather than getting stuck in what's the one cue that this person needs and then getting them in their head in the way and then they perform worse and then even if they perform better it's funny like they might leave the session thinking oh i need to you know activate x muscle and turn off y muscle mate one of my favorite ones for like just to bring this home for for like something like if they've had a lateral hip issue or, or we're needing to target some sort of lateral hip type of thing there's some sort of we're thinking you know they need a bit more lateral hip stability or whatever you want to call it okay um capacity whatever if, if we're thinking that their movement pattern is currently sensitive and they're dropping into kind of adductional valgus or something i'll just put a get them standing on a little step, put a tray across most, uh, this is like, I guess, at 18 plus, anyone who's allowed to have a drink before, I'll get them to put like a little tray on their hip. They have a step and I'll say, you're at the pub, it's your shout, okay? And you just have to take a step off this step and don't spill the beers because you're a poor uni student and you don't have all whatever their circumstance, you know, no one can afford to go back upstairs and buy a whole tray of beers. You'd be surprised how few reps it takes for someone to clean up what you know get into what is a more ideal position for that time if we've thought that okay that position that they were in was a bit sensitive at the time and for a short period of time it's going to be worthwhile training them to get capacity in a different position that's one of my favorite ways instead of being like okay no you have to be you got to work your glute med more we got to be doing this i want you to try to activate this muscle just put it in a task where I have something there. They have an environmental constraint. They're not allowed to spill the beer. Everyone pretty pretty quickly does a nice controlled step down with really good hip control when uh, when you know hundred dollars worth of alcohols on the on the line. So uh, what we're saying is we've got to make our kids climb and and get their toys up off 
cupboards and then make sure that they that everyone has a you know drinking habit so they understand all the cues that we're giving is that that's the takeaway so far that's that's basically it mate yeah exactly love it love it i'm 100 uh APRA approved i think that's it um so that was a joke for anyone that doesn't understand the aussie sarcasm but i wanted to to dive on that the giving people more options as well i, I feel like that's perhaps missing that movement variability and that kind of ties in with a bit of the dynamic systems model where if the individual can only have one or two solutions to a task it makes them less robust less able to handle when there's new constraints so this goes into the realm of performance if an athlete you know suddenly the, their equipment is a bit slippery or a bit off center and or the cha- the environment the context changes now they're suddenly playing under a raining a wet field rather than a dry field that they've been training on all year round and they can't handle that perturbation to the system. Talk a little bit about the the value in providing new constraints and a bit of movement variability. Mate, 100%. So I, I'm massive on, I guess, so everything for me is that, I guess, stress tolerance and, and stress inoculation. I'm massive on Dr. Robert Sapolsky from like Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and, and his like stress research. Really great papers coming out in 2019 if anyone's interested in that. So for me, things are kind of stress balance related is, is how I kind of simplified and go, okay, I'm building this person's tolerance to stressors, okay? So for me to build a more robust system, I do want to have like, I guess, the heaviest, the most maximal demand, the highest stressors. I do want the body to be in the most efficient position possible, but then it needs its ability to use that efficiency and and have a capacity that building volume in all these other positions that are emergent, that are more kind of play-based, that are more setting up different constraints to go, okay, you can do your deadlift perfectly, but now we're going to put you into something like a say a, like a Zercher deadlift or a um, something completely different where they're having to get into that like round back spine, getting under the bar, but it's nice and light. It's not their highest part of their load volume, but they're going to be able to use their strength well within their load tolerance capacity in a complete different body position that is going to have them prepared for whatever the worst situation is. And, and I guess we've every single coach has been doing that forever. You know what I mean? So like, all the wrestling work, all of that type of stuff, they're getting into all those awkward positions and that's just graded exposure into positions that, you know, they're, they're in their knee valguses, they're in their lumbar um, flexion, they're doing things, they're producing high levels of force there. So every coach has been doing it forever. I just don't think that we've kind of realized that, that, you know, there's so much focus on that, on the gym, on the perfect technique in the gym, it has to be this. And we don't realize that we've been doing those other things forever, but I mean, it's really good then as a coach, if you can also introduce that at a lower loaded, lower volume thing into the actual program as well. So things like carries, like awkward carries, things like jumping, landing with perturbation kind of movements, curtsy squats, curtsy lunges, whether you're actually trying to get the knee to go into valgus, those type of things. So that way, you know that, okay, they have experienced this position. They're going to get into this position they're comfortable to get into it and comfortable get in, get out of it. So massive with my squash guys as well. So my biggest area now that I train in is squash and we, you know, they have to get into some crazy positions and I'm training them like to actually have not their highest amount of volume and not their highest load, but they are definitely doing back off work in these kind of weird, awkward positions 
the conversation I'll have with any new squash player I have, I go, where don't you like, where do you not feel comfortable? Where are you feeling weak? And they'll always do some weird foot way across the body, arm in this fully bent forward position. I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to train you in that position at some stage because they all love that like a couple of weeks into it. They're like, man, I'm feeling amazing when I get forward into that position. Now I just have confidence in my body that I can get there and get out. And it's so it's setting up that environment to actually enable them to play and to experience that, but experience it safely, I guess. That's the most important thing. So, you know, I'm not going and putting their one RM squat load on them and getting them to curtsy squat kind of thing, because that's asking for trouble. And I would be doubtful that they would be able to perform a curtsy lunge in the first place. If they were to have a, you know, their bilateral barbell low bar back squat PR on their back. And again, that's based on the, the dynamic systems theory in itself. Yes, exactly. So that, I guess the dime and and people worry, say we go to go to a squat, everyone worries about that little bit of that knee valgus that comes out when people get into that maximal squat or that people kind of drive into the hips or something like that. But you know, that's just dynamical systems theory. Basically, if you give someone a task and the task is either too hard for the movement pattern that you're wanting, the the body will come up, the body's really efficient and really smart at distributing force to be able to get that done so you know that little knee valgus at the bottom of a squat coming up out is actually more efficient than trying to be pushing that knee out as hard as you can because your your body's going hey i get to use my glute stretch shortening cycle here really quickly like it's a nice safe thing that you know we all do all the time but for some reason it's been demonized so much whereas it's just part of dynamical system theory it's what's going to happen the body will go to that and, and that's its kind of go-to way to be able to to get up out of the bottom with the maximal kind of load absolutely and again with lumbar flexion sometimes based on limb proportions we're going to get into some lumbar flexion or some spinal flexion in in a 1rm deadlift in order to complete the task and i think that's that's not really taught or, or normalized perhaps you know ways of coaching and, and our ways of thinking about movement because yeah like you mentioned before we've been stuck on what kind of muscles are working and how the limbs are acting with each other versus the system's going to self-organize based on the task regardless so i gotta teach technique in the subject that i teach to the students there and one of the one of my favorite things to do is i sit up okay we're, we're teaching deadlifts now and i walk up to the bar that has 60 kilograms on it and I walk up with one leg over so one leg either side of the bar and I bend over and complete round back and I pick it on up and I go I put it back down and I just go oh is that was that okay what I just did there what are, are we happy class like and was that a safe and unanimously every hand goes up with the no like that was unsafe that was bad technique and I and then press I was like why what's wrong with that and they go, well, you know, your back wasn't straight. You know, you could hurt your discs, that type of stuff there. And I was like, did I? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, why do you think I didn't hurt my, why didn't I hurt my discs there? Why, why am I still standing here fine? Why haven't we called an ambulance? Why aren't I off in hospital? And sometimes some people get like pretty cool. Like some people have been around training or anything before. They're like, oh, how much do you normally lift? And so that like is a good question showing me that yep they you know they're thinking about these other kind of components which yet yeah, i'm not going to do like a little humble brag here but like <laughs> this the 60 kg that 
task constraint was well within the capacity for my body to do with that technique for it to be completely safe and a variable way that I could move that load and, and complete that task. If I were to put my one RM deadlift on there, that would not even have gone off the ground. You know what I mean? Like it just wouldn't, wouldn't have worked. So then I kind of explain how like, you know, you've got to take into consideration things like capacity, things like the task constraints, all these other components. And I, I think some of them get it. I think others are still just waiting for me to go home and develop sciatica. So, <laughs> yeah, but but I, I hope for some that it's a good good learning experience. And and the other tutor that um, is there and helping me is great with it as well because she's really on board with that exact same stuff. So no, it's 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 really good. But maybe at second year it might be a little bit not quite ready for for that for most of them. I feel like the the lived examples and the experiential learning is, is where it's at when when going through some of these movements that can be very fear inducing and, and looks quite threatening and it it gives that visceral disgust response. I don't know if you've ever had a, a knee injury or, or some other like shoulder injury. So a knee injury, if you see someone going to that, you know, really deep uh, sissy squat with their you know, knee, patella going to the floor and they're leaning back all the way, it, like it almost hurts already. So they probably have that kind of response to that spinal flexion. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, mate. It's, uh, I think that's 100% what's going on there. On the, that topic of the 1RM, I think you, you said it perfectly where if we were to put on your 1RM, say conventional deadlift load, and you were in an inefficient position to lift it you just wouldn't be able to complete that task so I think some of the misconceptions about this approach is number one we don't coach at all or we just let the lifter do whatever they want which is absolutely not what we're saying and then also efficiency isn't a thing no well it basically like yeah the the body will if I'm set up either side of the bar and I've not either side sorry on the one side of the bar so like I would correctly for a deadlift and I get my one RM load on there and say I've sat really low into a squat, no matter what, my hips are going to rise before that kind of bar lifts off. That's not efficient. Like I will teach people, I, do, I want them to be tense, but like when they go to move it, they'll show back on video and go, oh, you know, the hips raise heaps there and go, okay, what does that kind of tell you? Your body has, has put itself where it wants to be. Why don't we just try to get there from the start next time so you know these things like video feedback or like i love doing i guess other verbal cues are a really good way so quite often a lot of people can get a little bit sensitive to extension on something like a deadlift and and giving them a nice little cue to be able to kind of be bring it a little bit more i guess posterior tilt dominant as they're at the top i like to kind of just do something like put my hand there and say, okay, you know, there's a, there's an egg in between your, your back and my hand. And, you know, I don't like scrambled eggs and just come on up. And most of the time it ends in a lot nicer. So they were sensitive to ex going into extension in the top of a deadlift. And that clears it up straight away. I haven't told them, Hey, you have to activate X, Y, Z. So there's still that coaching element to it. You're still going back and you're getting feedback from the person, you know, how did that feel? Sometimes you'll see something and, they've come up with a way better movement than what you kind of were going to see. And other times the opposite, they'll come up with something and they'll be like, oh, that just didn't feel like right. And you're like, no, well, no, it probably didn't look too right either. Luckily, we're nice low load. If you look back at this, 
this is kind of the position and position that we want to get into. For us to get there, I'm going to go, okay, just some like that cue like I gave before. Like, you know, don't squash the egg or I'll just get in front of them and I'll try to yank the bar away from them. And I'll say, okay, now don't let me pull the bar away. Don't let me pull the bar away. And they've got to, they fight me for like, you know, five seconds. I'll be there trying to pull the bar away. I'll have a bit of fun with them. And then after that, I'm like, okay, now you just, every time you're deadlifting now, think I'm in front of you trying to pull the bar away from you. Okay. And now, so, you know, that was say if the technique fault that I saw the inefficiency in was something like the bar traveling away, they weren't staying tight. That's what I'll do rather than kind of being like, you know, lats, lats and all this type of stuff. I'd be, yeah, more that just creating some sort of error cue into the, into the system or some sort of other cue into the system that they're having just kind of self-organize around rather than having to kind of have me there over their shoulder, always shouting a kind of cue at them. Absolutely. And um, if we can get ourselves out of the picture as soon as possible to allow, facilitate the, the athlete to learn and to almost problem solve sometimes, I think that's, that leaves them with that confidence and that self-efficacy to, to handle and to build trust in their own bodies that they can figure it out themselves. 100% that problem solving bit is the most important bit, actually. That's why I say quite often, like, because I'm, I'm not going to be out there with you. And sometimes, as I said, they problem solve better than what my solution to the problem was going to be. And that's, I love it when you see that because that gives you then another tool in your toolbox to go, hey, I've not actually thought to have that solution to that problem, but this individual's come up with that and it's really efficient for them. And you know that that's going to be imprinted in them because they've come up with it. Their body has felt, hey, this was a really efficient way to do it. And they've repeated it, repeated it. And you know that that's something that's nicely ingrained into them and that they're going to be able to reproduce whenever they need it. That's it. And we, we talked a little bit about load management and, and how we would respect that. And I wanted to, to dive into some of the, the principles of strength and conditioning, of programming that are important in rehab and maybe it would be helpful to, to know as clinicians, as therapists in that space when, when dealing with injury and pain. Yeah, 100%. So as I said, everything I think of is if I put things into the stress recovery adaptation model in my head and kind of capacity is the tolerance kind of model in my head, that just really simplifies things down nice and easily for me. So basically the, the things that we're wanting to do, I guess, as a coach is apply a stressor, let it recover to hopefully adapt or in a simple model, adapt by the next session, or maybe you apply a few stresses in a row that the capacity drops a bit, but then you give it a bit more time to, to adapt. So that's, I guess, generally what we're trying to do. And, and our biggest kind of things that we can use for that. So everyone knows, you know, your intensity, your sets, your reps, those sort of things, makes up your volume load, which is, I think is the most kind of important thing here then your internal and external intensities are that are your important ones to kind of think of with your volume load because from that Dr. Sapolsky's kind of work you have stressors the external stressor then you have the internal stress response to that and those two things though slightly though similar they are different so the external stressor is, is your external volume load. It's your sets by your reps by the actual physical kind of load on the bar. So, you know, if I'm doing three sets of 10 with like 100 kilograms, it was, a, and say it was an RPE 10, that's like an RPE 10 effort. Okay. But that's a complete different beast to 
three sets of 10 bicep curls at like a RPE 10 still, which could have been like 20 kilograms. So both of them were an internal stressor of three sets of, or going to create that internal kind of stress response that I felt like that was an RPE 10 that I did for three sets of 10 or whatever. But the external actually stressor has been very, like the magnitude of the external stress that my body then has to respond to is obviously very different, you know, thousands of kilograms different in those two scenarios. So what we're doing as a coach, I guess, is is we're just trying to think about, and whenever someone comes in, injury, obviously their internal or their external stressors that they've been apl- uh, applied to them. And, and John Kiley's work is really good for here because that goes, okay, your external stresses, as I talked about before, but the other things that go into create the internal stressor is then say all of your psychosocial kind of components and sleep and all those other things go into it that there builds up their stressor that they the total stressor that they're going to have to respond to and then it goes what's this person's capacity so have they been able to adapt to that and that's good or have they been unable to adapt to it has it become a maladaptive something like an overuse injury or at the very most highest magnitude an acute tissue injury i guess are are two ways of the stress or being too big for i guess and and creating too big of a stress response for the internal capacity that you have yeah i like that framing of the the, the stressor rather than just load because there's always more than just that external load or the load on the bar for instance there's that athletes experience with it there's other multifactorial influences within that space already it's not just the weight on the bar yeah no that's that's right 100 percent. and that's why i think it's really important to i program now more so with rpe every now and then i might give some load ranges but my job most of the time getting people mostly from injury apart from my squash stuff which is mostly performance but most time injury i get a little bit more wiggle room with they don't need to be hitting exact percentages of something to next week be able to be on a powerlifting platform and being able to hit their perfect one rm so i usually program things like three sets of four to seven reps with three reps in reserve and that's kind of my programming so that goes internal stress or that i'm that i'm applying to them should be taking into consideration their whole i guess um, their training history how they're rocking up to the feeling that day all of the environmental stresses that are going on are they amped up is there something like you know have they had a coffee before going in all of that stuff goes into the selection of what the load on the bar is for that day and I'm also variable in there I know that anywhere from say that four to seven reps the adaptation that they're going to get out of it at the end of the day is pretty similar as long as it's hitting that kind of three reps in reserve or then or two reps in reserve one rep whatever it is then I know that okay cool I have hopefully applied the intended stressor for that day. So it should come up with then a stress response that when I assess them the next week, when I do my, as I said, with this type of bottom-up dynamic systems kind of approach, you have to be assessing quite often to see how they kind of tolerate. So whether or not you do like a one rep, one at eight RPE, or whether or not you do, I'd use broad jumps or whether or not you do something, but you're assessing their performance the next week or the next session to go, yep, okay, you know, you all responded well to this internal kind of stressor that I've applied, sweet, we'll kind of continue on with things. Or you go, no, okay, look, we're not responding well. 
we might apply it again because hey it doesn't really matter like you know you're you're not injured or anything and maybe you'll respond well again but if we have a few in a row that go yep not responding well not responding well then that's a bit of a trend to say hey you know we might need to change something on this kind of either your sets your reps or your loading there to make the volume load that your body the stressor that your body is actually creating a positive stress response to to get the desired capacity adaptation we would use some some of the concepts of changing the variables according to how that athlete or that individual is responding so again it goes back to that more bottoms up approach rather than trying to predict that they're going to have x adaptation after so many weeks we're applying a stimulus seeing how they respond and recover and that will depend on so many factors that we can't control and then as we get more data and get to know them as an individual as well how they're responding there's a psychological load there as well and how that how that interacts with all their other loads and demands during the week for instance especially with general population clients and then we can adapt and make it more individualized but if they foam roll they'll be fine they'll um they'll get there of course that wasn't the magic trick that we were missing the foam rolling is the secret recovery tool that's that's what we've been missing yeah that's right sorry I've been doing it wrong steve <laughs> now i wanted to to dive on in terms of the general populations when when these principles are applied to maybe more of that weekend warrior or even more of that sedentary populations how would these principles that we've talked about look in those contexts cool so that's why i think i framed it with the whole uh, dr sapolsky's kind of stress or stress response and capacity kind of stuff so when someone's coming to me you know doris down the road and she's coming to me and by the time i've got her into the physio clinic the shirt's already off she's lying down on the table and going okay well i and she's telling me you know the neck is is cranking I'm, I'm already knowing in my head, like, you know, going, okay, so we've obviously had biopsychosocial stress or that's been too much for your current kind of capacity stress response. And then my questioning as, so, and I'm not adverse to if I have to go on and give a little bit of a rub that that's okay. Like, you know, that's not my favorite, but during that time, what we will be kind of talking about will be, okay, what was basically your what what made up this stress response what what made up this stressor that kind of made this stress response that then goes okay that overwhelmed your capacity and then coming up with ways together through hopefully more motivational interviewing where the patients kind of coming up with it themselves are going okay well you know i was actually in the garden and doing this stuff more and i've had a fight with my husband and work's been shocking and all those things have gone into gardening which wasn't beforehand uh, too high of a stressor for her upper back or whatever now has kind of reached a point where that actually was too high so then we go talking about okay well what tasks are meaningful for you what things and if it is kind of gardening well then it's like just breaking down the tasks and going okay cool well then you know maybe we can find ways that you know in this next week gardening you know and if if they are going hey we've we've talked and they're not meeting physical activity guidelines, all these type of things. Well, then I might actually see if we can't kind of put in an, a little bit more general exercise as well, if the patient is, is kind of willing and open to going in, in that direction. But if not, it's going, okay. I know my, a great example was, again, a neck pain. Someone loved jet skiing. They absolutely loved it. So we just basically prescribed, help her 
load monitor her jet skiing um, exposures over she was getting ready for a big jet ski tour it actually sounded awesome that she was like jet skiing from brisbane to the wit sundays which is like i think it's like 700 kilometers so i'm not sure how like many days or how that was happening but anyway we just kind of went okay these load management things how are we going to kind of manage your stressors to train you with jet skiing up to the point that you're going to be able to jet ski 700 kilometers in four days or however long she had to do it in. And it was just by then going, okay, cool. Let's go out and do little trips to Morden Island and back and then come back and use other things. There was other things happening at work at the time. Okay. What can we do to downregulate that part of the biopsychosocial stressor that's building into it? So that way, jet skiing, the actual physical 40 minutes on a jet ski from, from her house to Morden Island and back wasn't overwhelming the capacity because you're not having all of those other work psychosocial things that were building into creating that internal stress response that was too much for her capacity. Does that make a bit of sense or have I just rambled around? Uh, no, this is great. It's a, and we can apply it to someone that say has a sitting tolerance of 10 minutes. That's again, that stressor is a bit too much for their capacity. So we can just reframe the, the activity even if it's not, you know, a one RM deadlift, if it's just walking outside or gardening for a certain duration, we can then use these principles for the, the non-athletes in inverted commas and help them build that capacity to then have the resilience to do those tasks. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and it's, it's a two-pronged kind of thing. I think most time it's, you've got the graded exposure from the physical kind of side of it. And then you also have whatever you know within your scope of practice and anything is like talking about the how they can downregulate or or strategies or other people they can talk to to help them downregulate those other things that in their story that they've brought up that have kind of that john kylie so eloquently puts in there he, he has really great arrows in his um in his thing about like stress response for athletes of being like the physical stressor is kind of yay big but then when you've added in sleep you've added in emotional you've added the actual, you think that you've gone to apply this physical stressor, which was five centimeters long on his on, on the page in the article, but then with all these other things added in, the big arrow that you've actually applied to the person is about 20, so it's like four times the size of the, the stressor that you actually thought that you applied if you only take into consideration that physical kind of component. So then it is kind of being able to, in the story with the patient, dig into those other and, and have that vulnerability to be, have them comfortable to dig into that other kind of stuff with you to go, okay, how can we maybe look at not having those other arrows contribute as much so we can make sure that this physical stressor, which is my job mostly to help you apply, how can we make sure that this is going to be appropriate to not create too big of a stress response to not overwhelm your capacity? That's it. Yeah. So making sure that environment is facilitative for that in the first place is no point in, in, in overloading someone when their cup is already full with other stresses, especially like for instance, lockdown and all the other priorities in their life. Yeah, mate. No, hundred percent. I guess for the, for the last question, as we encompass all the principles we've discussed and we've given some awesome examples, what advice would you give to to new grads who are coming across this maybe for the, the first time and, and they're looking to start applying and practicing this way and it's completely different and I, and I remember it was quite scary when when it when I started knowing that there's so much uncertainty and there's kind of clients patients demanding 
for me to provide that certainty, but it's a nonlinear dynamic system. So what are some pieces of advice, tips for starting out? Cool. So it's the, it's the having, they, they can have certainty in a plan. They can have certainty in, in the fact that you are going to be there to help guide them, that you know what assessments that you're going to be able to do, that you would know, you know, that if this then kind of thing. So go, okay, if, you know, if you're responding really well, our next step in this plan is this. If you're not responding really well, okay, our next step in this plan is this. At the end of the day, if you let them know that we're just going on principles, principles that are well-known, well-established, that basically, you know, it's the, the stress or the stress response, the, the capacity. We're just meeting to make sure that whatever task that we're doing is meeting your capacity. If you go away, if you flare up, hey, I know that I've overwhelmed your capacity. That's not been an ideal situation for you, but that's information for us to go, I can deconstruct exactly what I gave you and just make it a little bit lower starting point. I'll know there will be a starting point that will be within your capacity. And then together, if you kind of trust me and we can build this vulnerable kind of relationship together that you're happy for me to guide you, well, then we will progress. We'll find your baseline capacity. We'll do assessments. I'll show you the results of these assessments as we're going, or, or it could be meaningful tasks to them that they're kind of achieving. And we go, okay, this is the next step, okay? And this is how we're going to manipulate these principles to get this next step. I find it, it was one of the best ways for when you had no, I would have expletive, no idea what was actually going on with a patient if you, if you were going on that kind of biomechanical lens and you're just like, this is like meeting no typical patterns. This is no anything. This is the best place to be able to use this and it gets so confident because Basically, you're just breaking down what they want to do and you're giving them a path of how they're going to get there. And you're going, hey, if, if it flares up, sweet. That's information that tells us that good, we've overwhelmed your capacity. That shows us this is going to be your next starting point. We'll go there. We will be able to find it. And if you're willing to kind of go on this journey with me, we'll kind of guide you. You're more of a coach. You're kind of holding their hand along the way rather than being that authoritative, top-down, prescriptive type of thing. That's it. I love that. And I love the, the key word there, that vulnerability. I think it goes both ways where if we can be honest and transparent from the start and have these, I, I feel harder conversations that we're perhaps not used to, then we can open up that, that trust and that rapport from the start. Yep. No, that's, that's hopefully the idea. <laughs> Mate, that was awesome that we covered some, some really cool and practical topics today. And for the listeners out there that want to, perhaps read a bit more or also find out a bit more about your work where can they cool. find you so i'm active enough on socials on instagram so my hand i think it's called your handle is it at steve coach physio and then i put monthly or every kind of month and a half blogs up on physio network as well around all of these type of things so yeah i'm just doing one on youth training right now actually Awesome. Exciting. Cool. Mate, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and, and giving some really relevant examples. I'm sure the, the listeners have taken away some practical tips to apply. No dramas, Matt. It was great chatting shop as always.